All right. Well, good morning. It's hot. As we prayed this morning, uh, Pastor Nate is still traveling. He will be traveling with his family for the next few couple more weeks. We're going to have the a representative from the Jews for Jesus coming next week, and then of course, Jeremy is going to be teaching us um, in a couple of, in two weeks. So, uh, please continue to pray for Pastor Nate as he travels and spends time with with the family. Um, as we've been studying the events that have have led are leading up ultimately uh, to the to Christ being crucified on the cross, we've listened in on a number of conversations. Uh, if you recall, Nicodemus, we, we saw that conversation with Nicodemus where he's asking Jesus, you know, how can a man be born again? How can he be born twice? You know, it's a very mysterious thing that, that Nicodemus is pointing out. Um, we also see the woman at the well asking Jesus, you know, how can I have water that when I drink it, I won't thirst anymore? And that was an interesting conversation. And, and later on in chapter 6 of John, we see these people, these followers, come up to Jesus and ask him, um, how can we be people who do the works of God? And so we see in all these different conversations and these, these questions um, that are scattered throughout John's gospel, th- this kind of inquisition or this um, attitude in the minds of, of these individuals, a, a com- this common tone of how is it that I can learn or, or know more about, what you're, about who you are, Jesus? Um, how can my heart be where your heart is, and how can I get to, uh, to know better what you're teaching? I think if we're to be honest, uh, deep within us also there is this longing to know, you know, how can we belong? How can we get where, where you are, Jesus, and how can we better understand what it is you're, you're teaching us? And no matter where we are or how much we learn about the Bible or, or how many Sundays or Wednesdays or Thursdays we collect participating in church activities, we can do all these things and hear all these words and, and say amen a number of times, but not really know that we belong, not really feel this sense of belonging in the body at times. And whether we know it or not, that reality shows. Uh, we, this, this feeling of not belonging kind of comes out in our life and in our decisions and our choices, how we carry ourselves in the body. Please turn with me in, to chapter 13 of the book of John. We've been studying the book of John here, and we're walking through it verse by verse uh, and really just looking at the life of Christ, looking at his relationship with the disciples. And we've come to this place in chapter 13, verse 31, where Jesus is beginning a long discourse with the guys here. Um, Judas has left the room, and, and he starts this conversation with them. Chapter 13, verse 31. When he, being Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say, also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Please pray with me as we look at this. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as you talk to the the disciples here in this chapter, Lord, uh, we are reminded just of the fact that you desire to make things clear for us and you desire to make your truth known to us. So Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would do just that that you would speak, and that your word would be clear to us, that we can know you more. In Christ's name, amen. So as I said, Judas has left the room. 
You know, up until we, we saw it in the beginning part of chapter 13, we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. They're sitting around this table. And as they're sitting around this table, Jesus says that one of you will betray me. One of you in this room, one of you 12, will betray me. The guys don't know who it is. But at some point, Jesus says, I'm going I'm to dip this morsel into this cup and I'm going to feed it to one of you. And that's going to be the one who betrays me. And so he dips the, water, the, the morsel into the cup, gives it to Judas, and he says to Judas, go and do what you've been called to do. And when he does that, as Judas leaves the room, Jesus comes to these men and he says to them, okay, now it's time to get to it. It's time to understand why all this is going to happen. He takes this time to provide them with a very articulate largely comprehensive explanation of what was to come and how they were to respond. It's actually over the next three chapters, from 13 all the way actually through the end of 17, that Jesus gives this long dissertation of what the plan was that the Father had for him and the plan that God has for those disciples. In reading Jesus' words, knowing that in them he purposes to put their minds at ease regarding the events which will soon transpire, we discover some valuable principles regarding this notion of belonging. You know, the idea that, hey guys, you're here, you're supposed to be here, there's things that you have to do here. Judas has gone to where he's supposed to be, he's gone to where he belongs. It's time for you guys to understand why you belong here and what that all means. He gives us a few principles here, and the first principle he tells us about belonging is that the place where we belong is the place where God's glory is at the center. The place where we belong is the place where God's glory is at the center. Read again verses 31 and verse 32. When Judas had gone out, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So many times he uses that word. In the Gospel of John, uh, one of his chief aims is to explain how Jesus, the Son of God, stands in oneness with the Father, both of them being one in the Godhead, both sharing this one glory. He wants to help us see that this clothing and majesty, this is the idea of glory, a clothing and majesty, this splendor, this, this glory which we attribute to God is brought about and observed so wonderfully through the deeds of the Son. Now, this is, the, this is what John is all about, explaining how Jesus accomplishes and brings forward the glory of God before all of those that he meets. Yet in this description of glory, we come to know that this splendor cannot exist without the two, the Father and the Son, and of course the Spirit of God causing that glory to be known to us. And so we see this three-part God, this triune God, revealing his glory through both the Son, we saw him revealing his glory to the, the Jews in the Old Testament, and now today the promise he's given to us is that that same glory is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. And this is where the notion of belonging begins, with the glory of God being revealed and poured upon us so that we can, through the Spirit of God, become a part of that union. What we see in the cross and what we see in this whole scene here is that Jesus is saying, hey, the, the door will be open. There will be a breach in the relationship between the Father and the Son. And through that breach, you're, given, you're going to be given the opportunity to become one in that glory, to share in that wonderful glory that the Father and the Son have had since the beginning. Now, before we can really grasp this understanding of the glory of God, we have to understand a few things about it. And the first thing is this. Um, God's glory is more important than our own. God's glory is more important than our own. He says that in verse, uh, verse 31 again, he says that now is the Son of Man glorified. It doesn't say that now you guys will be glorified. Now uh, accolades will be given to the church. Now, Peter, you will be glorified before the people. No, he says now is the Son of Man glorified. 
They will look to the Savior of the world. They needed to understand that it wasn't important that any of them sit on the right or left hand of the Son. Because you recall where the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, please grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left. They were missing the point. They wanted to receive some glory in the kingdom. Well, Jesus wants to make it clear here that, hey, guys, the glory that you're going to experience, the glory that, that the only glory that matters is the glory that he has and that the Father displays through the work of the Son. So in, in, in some ways, this glory of God, this glory as it's revealed, is counter-cultural. Um, counter it goes against what we think uh, is normal in our culture. Secondly, this idea of the glory of God is counterintuitive. Considering verse 31 again, it says that now the Son of Man will be glorified. Think about it. God is saying here that he's going to be glorified through the Son through a death, through ridicule, through false accusation, through mocking. The very things that we consider polar opposite to glory, God is going to use these things to bring glory to himself. So in some ways, it's, it's a little counterintuitive in our minds. Thirdly, the glory of God, as described in this, this couple of verses here, is also countermining. Now, this means that the, it's, that the efforts pursued by God to cause others to see him for who he is through the, through the Son were efforts that were put forth in order to go against the work of Satan. You see, ever since he fell from glory, from the kingdom of God, Satan was, uh, was out on a mission to bring glory to himself. He wanted others to, to praise him, to worship him. You know, if you recall in the chapter in, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is on the mountain being, you know, tempted for a season, Satan comes to him and he says to him, hey, I want to give you glory. Bow down and worship me, he says to the Son of God. And so in everything that he does, Satan has been trying to bring glory to himself and cause others to worship him. And so what God is doing here is he's countermining that effort by bringing forth a work that solidifies the fact that the only glory that's important, the only glory that matters, and the only glory that we should be focused upon and desirous of seeing is the glory of the Father as shown through the Son. Consider John chapter 17, verse 5. Again, this is in that same conversation. Jesus makes this statement in chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory that the Father shared with the Son existed before the world existed. By way of disobedience, sin, Satan launched a war against God's glory in order to bring about his own. And in fact, he hasn't stopped, right? It wasn't that on the cross, Satan just gave up on the effort. He didn't stop coming after those who, who trust in God. He continued those efforts, and he continues those efforts even today. And so the reality is that if we are not placing the glory of God at the center of our focus, then our, the danger is that the glory of the enemy will take over. He'll come in, and he'll seek to control us the way God desires through the Spirit of God to take control of our lives. In these, uh, these opening words, Jesus also, he highlights another point about this principle of belonging. Not only um, is belonging found when God's glory is at the center of our lives, but belonging is found when there exists when, within us a longing to see Christ for who he is. We belong when there is within us a longing to see Christ for who he is. Back again at verse 33 in chapter 13. Little children, Jesus says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. If you recall back in chapter 7, chapter 7 of John's gospel, there are some guys who come up to arrest Jesus, talking about this idea of longing. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 7. We're going to read verses 32 to 39. 
thinking about this idea of longing and seeking after God, seeking Christ, we see this scenario where these men come up and they're seeking for Christ themselves. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I, where I, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet come, not, not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There are two types of glory that are highlighted in, in this, two types of longing, I'm sorry, that are highlighted in this passage. Uh, there's, I'm sorry, there are two types of people, reverse that a little bit, we'll get that on the podcast. Um, there are two types of people that seek after Jesus. There are people that are looking for him, looking to get something from him, and there are people that are longing for him. The question we have to really ask ourselves is, which one are we? Are we seeking, are we looking for Christ in order to, for, to have him address our needs, answer our questions, give us a, uh, something that we're looking for, or are we longing for him, des- desiring to learn from him, uh, sitting at his feet and surrendering all that we are for his purposes. In John chapter 7, we see that those who didn't get it made up stories about him. They made up fantasies about him. You know, these weird, fanciful ideas about what he would do. Those who would understand, as Jesus says in verses 30, 37 and following of chapter 7, those who do understand, they hunger and thirst for him. They understand that he gives life, that he gives clarity that he gives refreshment and peace, they would be given the Spirit of God and after his glorification was completed, begin a relationship that people up until that point had not and could not know. It may be tempting to ask the question, well, why does Jesus put the disciples in the camp of the former group? You know, because he says to them, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he says that I'm saying this to you in the same way that I said it to the Jews. In other words, I'm putting you guys in the same camp with those who were just looking for me, who were just looking for something from me. Well, the reality is that even though these men trusted in Christ, in some way, although albeit indirectly, their sin would put him on that cross. Everyone would be in opposition to Christ on the cross. Everyone who has sinned before or whose lives were human or who were human had put Christ on the cross. And in doing so, Jesus was saying that, hey, guys, you're all responsible for me being there. You're all responsible for me suffering and dying for your sin. And so in that way, they all were complicit in his death. At the same time, Jesus wants these men to understand that things were going to get difficult. Things were going to get very difficult. They would be persecuted. They would be ridiculed. They would be ostracized. Some of them would die because of their trust in him. And he wanted to comfort them in knowing that, hey, in as much as you will suffer, don't lose hope. Don't give up. This Sunday is what many churches celebrate in their liturgy as Pentecost Sunday. How many of you guys have ever celebrated Pentecost Sunday before? Um, This is the Sunday where, where, as a church, we are reminded of the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is the day in Acts chapter, I believe it was Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God descends upon the church, and they're now moving forward under His control and guidance. Some people consider it the birthday of the church. 
You know, it's 10 days after Christ's ascension, and it's, again, a day, a reminder that, that it is only because of the Spirit of God that we're able to do anything that God has called us to do. It kind of came on the hills or at the same time as what was called Shavuot or Shavuot in, uh, in, in Jewish customs, the Feast of Weeks or the, Feast of, uh, the Harvest Festival. And this was, celebrated, uh, this was used to celebrate the giving of the law. You know, here in, this, in the case of the Feast of Weeks, God was reminding the nation of Israel that, hey, the law was given to you 50 days after the Passover, and you're to be reminded of that. In the same way, um, if, if nothing else, we're to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power and the ability to do what God has called us to do, to give us this longing. The aim of the Holy Spirit is to place within us a longing for God that leads us to see that without him, we're not simply insignificant, we're nothing. We can't be, we can't do, we can't be long to Christ without the Holy Spirit taking residence within us. This is why belonging is only possible when there is a longing to be with him. This longing to be with him is a palpable burning inside of us to hear what he has to say, be where he is, to expect more of what he has already given, and to, like children, look to him for all that we need. It's the type of burning that we saw in the hearts of those men who were on the road to Emmaus, if you recall. Chapter 24 of Luke, the book of Luke, if you turn there with me. Luke chapter 24 we see this burning, this longing in the hearts of those men as they're walking. Christ had been, had, had been resurrected. He's now appearing to many men. And as he's walking along this road, these, he comes to these two men, and they don't recognize who he is, but they're listening to him. And he's telling them all these things about why, why he had to suffer, why he had to die. In verse 32 they make this statement. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And so you see in these men this this burning, this longing for Christ, this longing to understand, to better see what it is he's teaching. This should exist within us if we desire to have a sense of belonging in our own lives. This desire to know what he has to say, this desire to know what his will is, this this desire to see him for who he is, not for who we create him to be. The danger that we have is that we, we, we kind of create a God. We even go so far as to create a Christ that fits and conforms to this, this image that we have designed for him to be not what the Word of God has declared for him to be. And so if we're longing for Christ, we're longing for the Christ of the Bible. We're longing for the one who has revealed himself to the disciples and, of course, who reveals himself to us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And so we see that belonging involves placing the glory of God at the center of our lives, making his glory not our own, not our own image, not our own desires, not our own efforts and, and, uh, and pursuits, making his glory our center. Secondly, we see that belonging involves longing. No, there is no longing without being a part of Christ. Um, we see that there's a, there must be a longing in us to see Christ and to hear what he has to say to us. And of course, this longing comes forward because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no longing for Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no desire to seek God. There is no desire to understand God. And so we must desire the Holy Spirit to consume our lives. Thirdly, we see that that belonging also involves a one-another mindset. We discover the joy of belonging when a one-another mindset is reflected in our actions. We discover the joy of belonging when a one-another mindset is reflected in our actions. Back over to chapter 13, verse 34, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
When I first read this, I was thinking, what does he mean a new commandment? This is a little different. Is it a new commandment? I mean, is it, is it, a, is it something that the disciples had never heard before? Is it something that Jesus had never, had never taught before? If you recall back in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus says to, that, to that, young, that young man who comes to him and says, how can I, what is the greatest commandment, he says to him. And then Jesus says to him, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this wasn't just something that Jesus just pulled out of the sky. These are statements that, was, that were made by God to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. Let's go and read them. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse 5. Let's see it right there in the text. Chapter 6, Deuteronomy, verse 5. We see this commandment given. This is kind of where it starts. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these things, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall, walk of, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so we see the first half of what Jesus says and that the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then the second part of that is seen in Leviticus chapter 19. This goes backwards, two or three books backwards. Chapter 19 of Leviticus Verse 18, starting at verse 17, because we get the context. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. That's a pretty solid statement, right? We have neighbors, right? As a church, we have neighbors. As people who live in communities, we have neighbors, whether they're believers or not, we have neighbors. And we understand from the Word of God that, hey, we're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are not to hate our brother in our heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so that commandment was given before. So what does Jesus mean about a new commandment I've given you? Well, we understand that it was out of a desire to express his love that God gave the law. God gave the law because he wanted to show his love to his people. The commandments were motivated by his love. Everything that God does at, at his heart is motivated by his love for us. The reality is that with those commandments that were given in the Old Testament, there were several other commandments that were given. And the challenge for those who, who were trying to exercise those commandments and live out that ultimate responsibility is that they were often distracted by the keeping of ceremony. They were often distracted by the keeping of religion, the doing of church the activity of living out the work that they were called to be. So much so that they forgot or they, they didn't realize that, hey, there was a greater responsibility that you're being called to. As Jesus made clear, and, and, and again, back in Matthew chapter, what do we say, 22, that this is the greatest commandment. Not that you eat this food, not that you go to this place, not that you do this ritual, but the greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, soul, and might, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is doing here in chapter, chapter 13 of John is he's getting them back to that place. And he's removing from them all of these encumbrances that the law and those rituals were placing upon them. 
to remind them that the same sense of freshness, that same attitude and heart of commitment to God and the love of God that existed before you started to carry out all these practices, that love should be your fresh ambition even today. Jesus' aim is to bring about this refreshing, to take away the encumbrances of religion and lead those who would follow him into a new life through a living way. You know, the commandments brought forth death, as we saw in Paul's letter to the Romans. They were designed to reveal to mankind how far we had come from the perfect ways of God. Jesus' aim is to give us life, to help us understand what that life is all about. At the same time, as, as Calvin says, because he knows that laws are more carefully observed at the beginning, but gradually slip out of remembrance of men till at length uh, they become obsolete. Because of this, Jesus puts forth this command on the ground of novelty, so to speak. He said, as if he had said, I wish you to continually uh, remember this commandment as if it had been a law lately made, just made yesterday. He provides this reminder because he knows that we often miss the point. If, if we don't miss the point, we often forget the point. If we don't forget the point, we often soften the point. We make it less important. And so he wants us to see that, hey, this is a fresh command. This will always be a fresh command. And you're to see it as a new command every single day that you live. Because, because remember, soon you're going to be in a very difficult spot. People are going to be looking for you to kill you simply because you trust in the Lord God. There's a song that came out several years ago. Actually, it was, was it, How Deep Is Your Love? And in that song, those guys asked the question, you know, um, how deep is your love? I really, I, we're living in a world of fools. They're, they're breaking us down, and they all should let us be. We belong to you and me, right? You know, they're asking this question, how deep does your love go? I think we can ask it a different way. I'll create a new song, and that would be, how fresh is your love? You know, how new? This is the question to, to us who belong to the body of Christ. How new today is your love compared to when, what it was yesterday when things got really tough in that particular situation, in that conversation? How new is our love for those whom we share life with as a follower of Christ? How excited are we about being in this family, serving in this family? spending time in this family, belonging to this family, as we did when we first came to it. I guess another question could be asked, were you ever excited about becoming a part of the family of God? Jesus is giving us a commandment that we love each other. Turn back to another passage in, in 1 John the same John who writes the Gospel of John wrote a letter. He wrote several letters, but one of them is, is found in what we know as 1 John. And here he, he kind of echoes a very similar idea, a very similar uh, topic in, in chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse, verse 7. Actually, it, it's chapter 2. I should look at my notes here. Chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so John, again, is echoing that same sentiment that, hey, this is, it's a new commandment, but it's really an old commandment. 
What Jesus is telling us to do is something that we should understand we're supposed to do because the Spirit of God, which lives inside of us who believe, who is giving us longing to worship God, to follow Christ, to to look for Christ, to search for Him, to seek after Him. The Spirit of God who gives us this longing for Christ, who allows His glory to shine upon us and allows us to share in His glory, this God has called us to love each other. And that loving, that attitude, that, you know, because it's very easy to, to be here, right? It's very easy to, to show up at a church event, right? It's very easy to participate in a community or church activity. It's, an, it's really totally different to take that sentiment, that, that attitude of being there to a level of self-sacrifice, self-giving. It's, it's very easy to come and listen to a sermon, even when it's really poorly you know, preached, right? It, it's, it's very easy to show up, right? It's very easy to, to walk into the church, right? When the door's unlocked. This morning, the door was unlocked and people were outside. Well, it wasn't locked. I mean, it wasn't unlocked. Thank you. And people were outside waiting. But it's, it's easy to show up, right? It's, it's totally different to, to show up, right? To really show up. And, and that begins really first individually as we have this Holy Spirit living in us and working through us. It then goes a little further in our family when we interact with those in the house that we live with, people who know us best, you know? You spend, you spend too much time with people. You start to learn their ways and you, you um, preempt an argument, right, with your own argument, right? So we, we have to break that, right? So it's very easy, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to show up. It's another thing to actually bear with. You know, we do, we, we're to do it at home, but beyond, beyond home, we're to do it in this community, this body of believers that we share life with. Because, again, as we do that, what's going to happen? People out there are going to say, I want to know that more. I had a friend at work who, who's a Mormon, and he told me, he said, you know, I became a Mormon because when I moved here to California, over to, to Prunedale, these Mormon in the community came to my house and helped me unload my stuff. And I said, you know what? I want to be with those people because they, they help me unload my stuff. I mean, it's horrible. It's sad that he's, you know, under that, that teaching now. But, man, what if people could say that about us? Hey, you know, I came to church that Sunday because Frank came over and helped me do this. You know, I showed up for, for that, that event because this person reached out to me and helped me when I had some difficult stuff going on. And I know it, sounds a little, it may sound a little, you know, fluffy, I don't know. But the reality is that that's what we're called to be. And we can only be there when we love each other, right? We can only be there when that compassion is demonstrated amongst us. So if we're fighting and bickering and, and can't deal with each other, don't want to be around each other, then that's going to make it very difficult for us to make a difference. And so in this, you know, again, we see that the glory of God is at the, at the center. The longing for Christ, which comes forward because of the Holy Spirit, pulls us to Christ. This is what belonging is all about. We long for Christ. And beyond that, this relationship, this being and belonging to God uh, causes us to have a oneness with each other, this one another mindset. Thirdly, the we discover the responsibility of belonging when we understand and realize the great weight of the truths that he's revealed to us. You know, there, there is a heavy weight, because we, again, we talk about sharing this truth with those around us. We have to understand how heavy this truth is, the great weight that this is measured uh, in this truth. Back again at chapter 13 of, of John, Jesus says, in verse 
35. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he's highlighting something, and I want to park on it just slightly, is this, this idea of discipleship and being a follower, being a student of Christ. You know, if, if we've, all of us have, have had classes, all of us have been students of some teacher, all of us have been in a classroom, and some of us have even been teachers. And oftentimes, it's not until we sit in front of that exam that we understand the weight of what they've been trying to explain to us all this time. I remember when I was in eighth grade, we were given this thing called the, um, it was a pre-SAT, the, I don't know if they even still do it, but it was used to determine the National Merit Scholarship, right? They give you this exam in eighth grade, and up until this point, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, like whatever, you know, you just show up, right? You just, you don't know that, you walk into a homeroom, you know, in the seventh grade, in the eighth grade, and then they say to you, hey, here's a test. Take it. You don't know why. I'm just recalling back to what happened in the valley. <laughs> you, you, you don't know why. You just take this exam. Maybe it's because you have a bad homeroom teacher. But, you know, you take this exam, and then you, you get it back, and it's like, okay, I took it. What? Whatever. Well, you realize you didn't, you didn't qualify for this well, I didn't know it was for qualification, right? And so, so you, you don't, I mean, going through this process, you don't know how, how important these things are that you've learned up until this point until you get into that test scenario and you have to actually do it, express it, because if you do, you might get a little discount when you go to college. It's very, very oversimplistic, but it helps to prove this point that we have to understand now, even if we just came to Christ yesterday, okay? Some of you have recently come to Christ. You, you, this is a new thing for you. And you don't truly deeply understand the depth of these things, right? Jesus connects this idea of love for one another and the belonging that is defined by it to an equally important principle, and that is the principle or this call to discipleship. Being his student, one who learns from him... Um, we have, we have this kind of aim, and we should have this aim to do what he's called us to do and to ultimately grasp the weight of this truth. There are some attributes. You know, we, we live in this body, and as, bod, as members of the body, we are, we are students and we're, we're, um, we're disciples in this body. And... As a part of this body, there are some things that we should see. Um, we should understand, uh, because we belong to this body, what these, uh, these truths are. Look at verse, uh, verse 3 of 1 Timothy. Verse 3 of 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Got a little sidetracked there. Sorry about that. Jesus is connecting this idea of discipleship and belonging to this notion of this body, this community that we're in. First Timothy chapter three, if I can find it myself. We find here a few attributes of this body and a few attributes of this idea of discipleship. He says in, uh, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says in verse 15, If I delay, you may know how you one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of, God, of, of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And here's the point here. This body that we belong to as disciples of Christ is a, is a, tr is a truth buttressing body. This body that we belong to is a body that is designed and whose responsibility is to uphold to pillar, to buttress the truth of God. This is really should be our, our, core, our core duty, to make sure that 
the truth that he's proclaimed to us is upheld because without that truth, everything else just falls apart. Not only are we to be a truth-buttressing body, we're also, be, we're also to be a grace-imparting body, a grace-imparting body. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Peter says this, chapter 4, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ, through Jesus Christ, to him being glory, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so as we carry out our gifts, you know, we again, the Holy Spirit, he takes up residence within us as believers. As he takes up residence within us, he gives us certain and varied gifts. Some people call it a gift mix. Some, you know, you have a different mixture of gifts. Those gifts are to be exercised in the body of Christ, in the church, through grace and with grace being at the center. Because it's very easy to, or it, not very easy, but it could be our temptation to just do what we do and not exercise grace in doing it. The last thing we see about this, this another attribute of the body is that our, this body that we're in is a culture-transforming body, a, a culture-transforming body. Chapter 17 of John, later on again, this is the same discourse, the same dialogue. He speaks in chapter 17, verses 15 through 19, saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Keep in mind, this is Jesus at this time praying to the Father on behalf of the disciples, and he's making some statements in their presence so that they can understand what his will is for them. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And so in there, we see this, again, a constant theme of sanctification, of being different, of being set apart. That's the whole idea of sanctification. It's this notion of being set apart for a distinct purpose. And so that, in that concept is this idea of the weight of responsibility, that we have been set aside for God, by God, to accomplish certain things. And so in that fact, we're to be different. We're to be salt and light. We're to be transforming in how we interact with our culture. You know, when we consider all these things, we, we understand that belonging is found when God's glory is at the center. We understand that a, a longing for Christ must, must drive our efforts, drive our motivations. Uh, we see that a one-another mindset should be who we are and, and, a, and a part of what we are. We, should, we also see that the weight of the truth uh, must be what leads us and gives us the strength to, to carry on and the, the sense of responsibility in carrying on. The last thing we see in this idea of belonging is that we see striving to belong when we open our eyes and see that right here and right now is where God wants us to be. You know, it's, very, it's very tempting to want to wanna go and be somewhere else or want to go and be uh, someone somewhere else. But the reality is that God has called us to be where we are right here, right now, for however long that is. And so in that reality, while we're here, we, we must be a people who glorify God. In this situation, in that relationship, in this scenario or whatever that we're in, we're to be people who long for Christ, who long to hear what he has to say. We're to be people who have a one another mindset and always a people who understand the weight of this truth. So no matter if we're here now or there later, we have to be where he's called us to be and live out the life that he's called us to live while we're there. The enemy, as we see here, has been defeated. 
Now, Judas has left the room. He's out. He's gone to the place where he belongs, gone to do what God has called him to do, to bring about the glory of the Son and himself. Now God is speaking to us candidly. He's closed the door to the room, and he's saying to us, hey, here's what I'm calling you to do. Here's who I'm calling you to be. We can only understand that. We can only see that when we live here now. Belonging is no longer a, a strong desire because we know that where we are is where he wants us to belong and where he's called us to be. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you desire us to see your face and we know that you desire to bring us to this place of, of hearing your voice, living out your word, demonstrating your heart to those around us. We understand, Lord, that you've placed a great magnitude um, in the teaching, a great magnitude of, of duty and responsibility through the teaching of your son. But we also are reminded and encouraged, God, that it is through your spirit that you give us the very strength to carry out this great work that you've called us to do. And so, God, today, as we reflect upon these things and as you remind us of your word, we pray that you would always cause us to belong in you, that your glory would be seen through our actions and that your son would be proclaimed in the deeds that we commit to ourselves to as a body. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.